Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good morning. My name's Nathan. I serve as one of the elders here at Pillar Okinawa. Um, so today we're going to jump into John 2. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we come before you now and we confess that many of us are coming in here today as empty vessels, uh, Lord, that we're empty pots, and uh, we need uh, you. We cannot fill our own uh, vessels. Uh, Father, uh, may we find that in your word and in your spirit. Uh, you tell us in Timothy, Lord, that you, uh, your word is good for teaching and correction and rebuking, Father, Convict our souls as we dive into your word. Uh, May truth come from my mouth. You pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. So, uh, as we jump in, I want to open up with you guys uh, a journey. So, my wife, uh, Megan, and I, several years ago, well, it's been a couple, about a year, a little over a year ago now, uh, took a trip, and we did a hike. Um, And so, yeah, here's here's my wife, uh, Megan, um, and we're hiking uh, on this hike. Um, at the beginning of this hike, uh, this is the very beginning, there's much anticipation about what our hike is going to look like. We trust the pathway. It's well-worn. We've, we, uh, we've heard about this hike. So we take off on this hike, and, um, and we know and trust that when we get to the end, it's going to be magnificent. We're going to be seeing some of the glorious uh, things of creation there for us to behold um, and you'll notice here too, but yeah, so Megan, you'll, she's got the backpack on. You'll notice in the next picture it disappears. So love you, babe. <laughs> Just something to look out for. But perhaps along the way, you guys can come up with your own uh, journey that you've been on, maybe your own hike that may fit the, the line that we're doing here. The point is, and why I wanted to bring up our journey this, as we'll travel through our, our hike here in a minute uh, is just like Megan and I began our hike and you possibly began your hike at some point in time. The passage we read today is the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry. This is the beginning of his journey. Um, 
And so we'll walk through what that looks like as we go on. Just, a, just a, some quick overview here on what it looks like in, this, in the text and how it fits. So we're in John 2. This is the last of the four Gospels, the account of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Uh, and this section starts what's called the Book of Signs. And so over the next uh, 10 or so chapters until chapter 11, um, Jesus performs seven signs. Oftentimes within these signs, uh, he'll, he'll confront his, uh, the people that are against him. He will call people to him um, through these signs. So for instance, the next section, he throws out the money changers in the temple. We see in chapter 9, uh, he heals the blind man. Uh, chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, and then there's also a theme throughout of abundance and newness. Abundance and newness. One of my favorite sections of John is John 7 here. Just a few chapters later, uh, Jesus will say, on that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. There's newness that we see throughout this section. There's abundance that we see throughout this section. So as, by the time we get to John chapter 11, the, the, his enemies have confronted him. And at that point, we see Jesus Jesus's, uh, Jesus's ministry starting to head towards the cross at that point. Here in chapter 2 that we just read, um, we see a scene open up where uh, Jesus' mother, so we, this section that we've been in, the gospel through Mary, Mary's there at this wedding. It's there in, in modern-day Israel. And um, she's helping out. Um, perhaps she knows the person that's at this wedding. But also in there, too, we see Jesus has been invited with his disciples. Um, he's, Mary turns to Jesus, uh, and, and, and maybe it's because of his resourcefulness. Again, speculation. We want to be careful with speculation when it comes to the Bible. But perhaps Joseph, by this point, has died. He's not mentioned in the, in the script. Either way, um, uh, Mary turns to Jesus and asks for his help. And, and Jesus uh, goes on to, to ask the servants to fill up these, these vessels, these, these pots full of water to the brim, which they do. They are then, uh, we learn beforehand, though, that they're out of wine. So that's why they're filling these vessels up. Jesus tells them to do these things. Um, and then they bring them back to the wedding. And lo and behold, Jesus has transformed the, wine, the water into wine for the wedding. So there's kind of a backstory. I'll hit one thing really quickly that always comes to mind when I read through this section. Uh, perhaps you caught it too. There's a term that Jesus uses in here, and I'll throw this back to you, but, but, but it might have hit you as a little bit, what's the right word, harsh, uncanny. Uh, any, any guesses on what term Jesus uses in here that might be a little bit off-putting to some folks? Woman, woman right? He calls his mom woman. So... Um, so I, 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 too, am a little perplexed on these things. So a couple of things. He uses this term woman uh, four times in the New Testament, in, in John. Um, and within that, he, like, he, he calls Mary Magdalene in the garden the same Greek term. He calls his mother from the cross the same Greek term woman uh, in, 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 in imploring uh, John to take care of his, his mother. It, again, he calls woman. So this is not an offensive term in the Greek language, uh, and that would have been written in. Um, in their culture, it would not have been uh, offensive. It is, however, the most commentaries say it is, however, a very a, a formal, a more formal term than what you would call somebody. 
So in a sense, this may be a way that, that Jesus is pulling away from his family in a sense and saying, uh, the worldly desires, your desires as this family, are not the same as, as kingdom desires. So let's make some separation here. And so that's why, in a sense, some commentaries say he may have used this term woman. My mother-in-law was in town this last week, um, and I love her dear, dearly. Um, so I was thinking perhaps now I have license to call her uh, woman when I walk into the kitchen and it's plastered with, uh, with flour everywhere. Um, and then I got to thinking perhaps I just need to keep my mouth shut and enjoy the gingerbread cookies. So <laughs> advice. All right. So let's slide into the main text. Um, so our big truth for the day, and when I say big truth, it's the first one up there. The big truth is going to be how we see God's character in this. What is the main thing we learn about God in this, or Jesus for this, uh, for this text? So Jesus shows his power. He does. He shows his power. That's very key. And he fills human emptiness. Shows his power and fills human emptiness. So out of that comes the big idea, what I call the big idea, which is the second one. When we, uh, and this is how our implications for our life, how we, sh- how we apply this to our lives. And so uh, out, of this, we, out of this truth, we see an idea that says, when we anticipate are transformed and obey, Jesus fills empty vessels. Jesus fills empty vessels. And so here's a quick outline, just so you know where we're going, if you like to take notes. Um, uh, Part A will be a picture of empty vessel life. Part B will be a picture of full vessel life. And then I'm breaking that down into three different things that we'll see in the text. There's an anticipation, there's an abundance through obedience that's found there in the text, and also a transformational abundance We'll close out with some application at the end. Okay. So, part one, a picture of empty vessel life. Uh, The miracle here in John 2 hinges on the climax around the vessels. They were empty, now they are full. They were empty, now they are full. These pots or vessels represent a broken, lost system. So again, in 6 and 7, he says, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. These pots are large, cold, dead, empty stone. They are large, cold, dead, empty stone. You see, the Jews had already been given the law, and the law we know we can never fully fall, uh, follow. Um, now, Paul tells us in the New Testament that the law is, is good. It's a, sh- it's a shadow of, of the coming Jesus. It's something that we will never be able to fully follow, but it's, it's a, a picture of God's righteousness, his holiness. But in this period, even after the law was given and in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, Jews continued to, to create new regulations, new laws to follow. In particular, this, these, these, these vessels of purification that it talks about here are, are just that. They are, they are things that have been added for, um, for the Jews to, to feel a sense of getting closer to God, of, of cleansing themselves, of being more righteous or, or striving after God. And so these, these vessels uh, particularly are for, for purification. So they would have 
they would have cleansed, in particular, their hands before worship or before uh, eating rituals. And the water had to, to land on their hands in a certain way and drip off their wrist in a certain way. So very, very, um, very, very um, particular in the ways that they interacted with these vessels. Um, it was a, a very dead system, a very dead system, a way of working their way to God. And we, and we see this today. I know even where I'm from, the hometown where I'm from. Um, and again, when I talk about other groups of people, we, we love them deeply and we love them um, wholeheartedly uh, to Jesus. But I, I just, I, I think back to where I've come from, that there's an Orthodox Jewish community, even in the hometown where I'm from, and, and they live very close to the temple there. They have to walk to the temple because they can't drive on Saturdays, their Sabbath. They can't use certain technologies on the day of their Sabbath. Um, they follow these rules, and it just it, it's a dead system. In fact, it's a picture of a cold, dead, empty, stone vessel type of religion. So that's looking back. So let's look out. What does our culture look like today? What does our culture look like today? The dead systems of today. So uh, here's a picture, by the way. So we started a walk. This is a picture of the area around where we were walking. It's very... Uh, deserty, very, uh, um, there's a lot of rock, not a lot of vegetation. Uh, there is a lot of, let's face it, not a lot of life, a lot of death if you expose yourself in this area for very long. There is death there. And it's, I think, in a, in a, a good picture of, of these systems, these, these cold stone, uh, these dead, empty stone vessels that we're looking at in, in the picture of what it looks like in our culture today. For one way, way that we, our culture does this today is we Sometimes we talk about ideas, we abstract ideas, and we just sit around and talk about like f- philosophies that, that might have ethical systems to them or morale systems to them, but we don't ever apply them to our life. I think probably where we land more often in our culture today is we land with the striving after, the applying stuff to our life with our own power. We turn to things like and again, these aren't inherently bad, but we turn to things like self-help books, um, other tools to, to guide us through things. And again, there's a common grace there. These are not necessarily bad tools, but when they're the end of all, then, then that is bad, right? So uh, I was just in class this last week with some guys, and we were talking about um, the rise of, of, a, of a new movement that's been increasing in the United States in the West in general, it's the rise of Stoicism again. And Stoicism has been around for, for centuries, for, for thousands of years, but it's making a rise again. And it tends to make rises when there's lots of uncertainty in the world. And so lots of people are turning to Stoicism. So if you don't know what Stoicism is, it's, it's, a, it's a putting away of your emotions. It's a curtailing. It's a, it's a deadening of your emotions so you can walk through life without any kind of emotional uh, 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 reaction to anything. And so here's some of their sayings of modern Stoics, okay? And so this, this is very similar to what the Pharisees were doing. So um, they say, have sayings that say, we suffer more often in our imagination than in reality. We suffer more often in our imagination than in reality. Ignorance is the cause of fear. Cease to hope and you will cease to fear. Mm. Cease to hope and you will cease to fear. Now look, I'm not saying there's not common grace in this, and I'm so thankful that today I don't gut react to everything, and I have 
some control over my emotions in different ways. But let's be queer, church. If we hold to this, what are we doing to the person that walks through that door that's facing real trauma today in their life? It's real. That's not loving if we say, cease to hope and you will cease to fear. That's not loving if we say we suffer more often in our imagination than in reality. How dead? How is that shepherding and loving somebody? Perhaps even you struggle with these things. Perhaps that's your reality today. This is real stuff. And I think even more importantly than even that is it cheapens the power of Christ. It cheapens the power of the gospel to say, yes, we struggle with these things. But we have a Jesus that we can turn to and cast our fears and doubts on, and he takes those from us. These modern answers are like those Pharisees. They're just large, cold, dead, empty, stone vessels. So let's look in. Let's look in. So we've looked back and we looked out at our culture. Let's, let's evaluate what goes inside of us. We strive under our own rules so often we look like Stoics. I look like a Stoic so often. More work and striving. We must live by a, a certain social standard. We pursue trusting in a particular political system that we think is going to save us. Cold, dis, dispassionate spiritual disciplines. There's no sense of desire left in your walk. And I'm not saying we don't go through dry spells, guys. Hear me. But there's not a trusting in a spirit-led life. We're just robots. Our lives, we might fall to the, to the lie that our lives and families must appear perfect. Striving to overcome that debilitating sin, whether or not that's a sexual sin or whatever that might look like on our own power. There's no transformation. In these systems, we are nothing more than large, cold, dead, empty stone vessels. But here's the hope. The wedding scene was left empty before Jesus got there. Jesus, however, transforms the scene. He, his power creates a fullness, a picture of a full vessel life. So here's the good news. Let's transition to, from the bad to the good. Y'all ready for that? Here's a picture of the full vessel life. Slide seven. So here's again my big truth at the very top. The big truth for this passage is Jesus shows his power and fills human emptiness. And then here's the three bullet points underneath this. When we anticipate, are transformed, and obey, Jesus fills empty vessels. When we anticipate, are transformed, and obey, Jesus fills empty vessels. So part one of this, there's an anticipation involved in Jesus coming to this wedding. An anticipation. So here's a picture, by the way, of our, on our hike. Um, again, Megan, minus the, the backpack. Um, you can, <laughs> on the left, you see the, um, on the left, you see the, 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 the handrail. It's a chain. And it's kind of hard to pick up in this picture. Um, but on the right-hand side, that is a, like, a sheer drop of hundreds of feet. I mean, it is, it is certain death if you were to slip off to the right. Um, and the crazy thing is, as we started getting, as we started climbing up this hike, we started getting glimpses. We could see glimpses of, um, of the, the view that we were going to get ahead of us. And it was, it was beautiful. It was already leading to something. We knew something great was coming. 
Um, I, the Lord, I, I just love how this, this is a picture of how the Lord wires us. We, um, God gives us the good gift of anticipation. God gives us the good gift of anticipation. Um, I, even just the last couple of weeks, my, my wife, uh, here's Megan up here. So um, Megan uh, and I welcomed uh, baby Titus. Uh, he's, he's two weeks old. And so there's been lots of anticipation over the last few weeks waiting on him to come, and he came, and it's just been a beautiful thing to have welcome this new boy. Um, so if he grunts or cries, that's an amen. That's not a hurry up and get this thing done. Uh, so um, a picture of that. We see it again in, in John, John 2, 3, and 4. When the wine ran out, and, mother, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So Jesus has anticipation here. He sets up anticipation. He is on the road to an endpoint, a journey, a pathway. It is predestined. A conclusion is foreknown, and it must happen. It is willed by the Father. There will be a struggle for sure, for he was tempted in every way that is common to man, but he does not sin. This road is hard, bumpy, impossible for, for others to take. That's the point, right? The ministry and great suffering of Jesus starts here with this, these large, cold, dead, empty stone vessels and the miracle that he's about to produce. He creates beauty. He creates rebirth. He creates newness. The hope of this wedding lies in Jesus' power. The hope of humanity lies in Jesus' power. So what is his hour? It's the cross. His hour is the cross. And guys, if you're new to Christianity, if this is your first time in exploring such things, or, or maybe you have lots of questions or haven't ever gone deeply into these things, guys, here is Christianity right here. This is as important to me today as a Christian that's been standing up here for some years as it is to the believer that, that has, has professed faith in Christ today. Here's the gospel. This is what Christianity is. Here's his journey. He trudges towards death. This is Jesus. His body is giving up as a sacrifice for all of humanity, a penalty for our sin, our wrongdoing against God. He atones. He makes our sins right in the Father's eyes. He is raised from the dead to reign alongside his Father. We trust and believe in his final work. We are saved. One day he shall return to make things, all things good, right, beautiful. It's almost like you can hear in Matthew, the, John the Baptist, they're screaming, He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, anticipate, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Is that your posture, church? Not only is there anticipation, Jesus supplies an abundance through obedience, an abundance through obedience. I love how he says this. He says, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. This is Mary talking, and this Mary connects... This connects Mary's anticipation to a trusting. She trusts in him to do these things. And not only that, do we see Mary trusting in Jesus. She follows his instructions. Um, we see the servants also trusting in Jesus as they take the vessels and they fill them to the brim. Again, it says, and Jesus said to her, um, Woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Obedience is joy. Obedience is joy. I just um, 
let's, the, yeah, so as we walked along, here's a picture of it before I explain. So um, Megan and I, as we walked along, we got to this one portion of the, of the trail that's uh, next to a creek. Remember, we're in the desert, and there's these beautiful large trees that wouldn't be surviving in any other part of, of where we're at, in the environment that we're at. Yet these large trees were standing next to this creek, and they were, they were there. They were, they were sucking the nutrients out of the water there. They were, they were able to survive um, based on this. I mean, it was a ribbon of green running through a tan environment. It was beautiful. And, and this picture brings to mind Psalm 1. So Psalm 1-3 says... The righteous, or you could say the obedient, the righteous or the obedient are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. The obedient are like these trees in the middle of the desert. In the middle of our culture that we live in, we're beacons of hope. In the same way, in 2.7, we see the servants, they fill them to the brim. There's an obedience in this picture, and, and they begin to, to look to the outcome of what's going to happen. And again, remember, Jesus, he says, my time has not yet come. But Jesus, again, is obedient. He's obedient back to his father, his good father, knowing the end, knowing what's coming. And because of that, because of his sacrifice, guys, we too have the power to follow in obedience. Not perfectly, we're sinners, but we too have the power to follow in obedience. And that's why we can't talk about obedience unless we talk about transformation. So there's a transformational abundance that comes, that we see in this wedding, in this, in him transferring, uh, transforming the water into wine. He transforms those large, cold, dead, empty stone vessels into full vessels. And 290 says, when the master of the feast tasted the water now, water now had become wine and, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And the crazy thing is, he didn't just leave it as water. And, and we know water's good, remember? Jesus calls himself in John 7, he's the living water. And he doesn't even leave it as water. He leaves it as something even greater. He turns it to wine. And then he doesn't even do that. In 2.10, he says, you have saved the best wine until now. It's the best wine. I just think of Jesus sometime later in John 15 when he's talking to his disciples. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, um, John 15 in general. And Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine. You are the branches. Let's put it another way. I am the wine. You are the empty vessels. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He willed the miracle to happen. He transformed it. A transformation of something cold, dead, empty, and stone into something life-giving, the wine. And let's don't miss the fact that he's using a sign. Signs are, are been, this is the way we're wired. We learn through signs, experiences in our life, what we see, what we do. This is why God calls us in so many ways to, to be what we're doing right now, to be at the part of the local gathering weekly, to experience uh, God's, God's spirit among his people, to, to, to the reading of God's word. Week in, week out, we learn from these things. That's why we take communion so often as we do weekly here. 
is because it's a remembrance. The sign, the sign of this is a remembrance of Jesus on the cross. He died for our sins. We remember these things through these signs. In the same way here, Jesus consistently shows his signs. And I think it may be the most overlooked verse out of this, out of this chapter of this section of text, and that's 211. And it says, this is, this is the end result of the sign. He gave the sign. He changed through his power. He changed the water to wine. And it says, and his disciples believe him. Not just about the miracle. These signs convey truth, his glory. Glory predicted in John 1.14 where it said he came in glory. We saw him in his glory, full of truth and grace. The disciples um, trust in him. And not only that, we see the purpose of even John. John writes in John 20, John, the apostle that's writing about this, later on gives the entire reason for him writing the entire book of John. And he says in John 20, 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me repeat that, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wrote these things and produced these signs so that you may believe, brother and sister. Unbeliever in the room. So what is our application coming out of this? Again, let's go back to our big truth. Jesus shows his power and fills human emptiness. Jesus shows his power and fills human emptiness. And our big idea, our application is, when we anticipate, we are transformed and obey, Jesus fills empty vessels. When we anticipate, are transformed and obey, Jesus fills empty vessels. So we came to the end of our hike. Here it is. Here's the end of our hike. Um, now, I, this picture, you know how pictures do no justice to anything. We are so high up at this point, and we walked up on a ledge that's literally three foot wide for, for hundreds of meters. And it's hundreds of foot drops off on each side of this ledge. You can see how narrow it is right there. And, and by the way, this is, this is a road that looks like a walking path. That's a, that's a two-lane road. Here's the, the river that's bringing life to the valley below. Um, it's a beautiful picture. And I just remember Megan and I standing on top of that rock. By the way, this is Angel's Landing. If you've ever done Angel's Landing in Zion National Park, right outside of Las not too far from Las Vegas, if you've lived in that area. A beautiful part of the world. And we stood at top of that and just in awe worshiped God for his creation. I mean, it's just a picture of Psalm 19 where God says he, he spreads his creation out like a tent across the earth. It's beautiful. And so there we are. There, there we are. We're called to, to, to this magnificence. But the point is, our anticipation, our anticipation led us to worship as we crested the top and we saw his beautiful creation across. So we're in a period right now. We're in December. Church, are you anticipating the birth of Jesus? We know it's already happened, but are you anticipating what's coming? The goodness, the good gift that God gives us through the birth of Jesus. Not only that, are you anticipating what Jesus can do in your life? His, his work is already finished on the cross. We know that. But we, we anticipate his transformation in our life at salvation. But we also anticipate, are you, tra- are you 
anticipating the transformation that God's going to do in your life continually, ongoing? Are you anticipating these things? Let me, let me even say it a different way. Are you remembering to anticipate? Are you remembering to anticipate? I just love, again, we read this a few weeks ago when <laughs> the Magnificat that, that, that Mary has here in Luke 1, and she's just learned um, who her son is and that God's chosen her. And she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and as holy is his name. Has the Lord done great things for you, and have you anticipated those great things? It may not turn out like you expect it to, but is the Lord working in your life? Transformational obedience. Are are you a large, cold, dead, empty stone vessel? Or are you a tree planted next to the creek there in Zion National Park? Are you a picture of Psalm 1? I love how this, so this is a quote. Um, this is one of the more influential um, um, persons I've read over the last few years. Uh, Dallas Willard, he was a, uh, he's only been dead for a couple years, but he was a philosophy professor at at the University of Southern California, but a dearly devoted Christian. Um, and and here is, here's what he wrote. He says, But the truth about obedience is the kingdom of Jesus. As should be clear by now, it is that, is that it is really about abundance. Here, here's the key part to the, entire, to the entire quote. Kingdom obedience is kingdom abundance. They are not two separate things. The inner condition of the soul from which strength and love and peace flow is the very same condition that generously blesses the oppressor and lovingly offers the other cheek. These Christ-like behaviors are expressions of a pervasive personal strength and it's joy, not a weakness, morbidity, sorrow, or raw exertion of will as is so often assumed. All of these old options that we might think should be kept in reserve just in case they turn out to be necessary, will not even be missed. Are you a picture of the raw exertion of the will that that Willard talks about here? Or are you trusting that kingdom obedience is kingdom abundance? Are you anticipating an ongoing transformation in your life, a sanctification? In church, here's the key. We can be full today. We can be whole today if we trust in the empty grave it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, is what. We are slaves to Christ so that we have his freedom. See the Lord. Make, see the Lord make things new. Make things beautiful. Starting with your own life. Living a repentant life. An unbeliever and believer in the room alike. Today, see and taste that the Lord is good through a trusting and obedience I just, let's close with this. In his final words, he says in the passage, and his disciples believe him. They saw the sign, and his disciples believe him. See how he works. See his miracles day in, day out. Unbeliever, believer in this room, preach the gospel to yourself. Respond to the gospel. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, slow our hearts down 
and minds, Lord, that we can turn to your truth. And Lord, your word, Lord, may it not be cast aside, but Lord, may it, 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 it change us. As we read about this story, it's not just a cute story from 2,000 years ago, Father, but it's a picture of your transformation. And Lord, so many of us in here, myself included, often bring nothing more than cold, empty, dead stone vessels. And Lord, Spirit, convict us to turn to you, to trust into you. We cannot do this in our own power. But Lord, fill us up to the brim. Change our hearts and give us your power, Lord, that we can only trust in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.